please be advised that this episode contains mention of personal injury and death. There was other things we didn't realize until we were out there, until we were closer to the water, closer to the ocean, closer to what was going on. We started realizing how severe these conditions were. The ocean just didn't want us there. And it got ugly quick. Way up in the northern fringes of Nunavut, Canada, just inside the Arctic Circle, lies the island of Igloolik, home to a largely Inuit community of roughly 2,000 people. It is a sparse, uncompromising place, surrounded by Arctic tundra, where in winter months, temperatures can drop as low as negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And on some days, the sun doesn't even rise. It is here, on the evening of October 26, 2011, that Katani Sopranak stands staring out the window of his home at the quickly darkening sky, with great concern on his face. Early on that October morning, Katani's uncle, David Akiorook, and his 17-year-old son, Lester, set off in a narrow, 14-foot open boat looking for walrus. The plan was to be back before dark. When they left, the weather was bright and calm with temperatures of 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Then it turned unexpectedly. By nightfall, the temperature had plummeted to minus 10. Blizzard set in and there was no sign of the two hunters. Just over 1,700 miles away at the Joint Rescue Coordination Center in Trenton, Ontario, a mayday message was received from a GPS tracking device registered to David Akiaruk. That message would spark one of the most extraordinary and tragic rescue stories in Canadian search and rescue history. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, Leave No One Behind. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're experts in saving lives, whether it's in the wintertime or it's in the summertime. This is Sean Brett Schneider. Back in 2011, Sean was a search and rescue technician, or SARTEC, in the Canadian Armed Forces Search and Rescue Division when David and Lester's Mayday call came in. We're trained to parachute, dive, mountain climb, 
Now we're doing helicopter rescue where we're jumping off planes. Once we're there, we're trained to help out these victims to also keep them alive, keep ourselves alive in any kind of condition. Sean is part of a five-person helicopter rescue crew based in Gander, Newfoundland, with the call sign Rescue 915. Operating in a country that measures just under 3 million square miles, with environments ranging from vast Arctic wildernesses to 19,000-foot mountains and everything in between, Canadian SARTECs are considered some of the toughest and most highly trained in the world. The Akiruk's mayday signal places David and Lester's boat at roughly five miles off the coast of Igloolik. In the Canadian Arctic, any rescue mission at that time of the year is intensely dangerous. The first challenge is simply getting to them. When it comes to rescues up north, we don't have a lot of big runways or SAR units and bases. I mean, the areas are so big, right? And there's so much to Canada. Going up north, there's just less of everything. I mean, Igloolik is so far northwest from where we were situated. The nearest aircraft to David and Lester is a Herc rescue plane, short for Hercules, kept in Winnipeg, Manitoba, just under 1,500 miles away. To put that into context, that's just over 100 miles shy of the entire length of the United States of America. It will take at least four and a half hours just to get to them. At some time around 11.15 p.m., two hours after the Mayday signal is received, that Herc plane takes off in search of the missing hunters. Back in Igloolik, Katani is getting increasingly worried. On the island, there is no rescue team to go look for his relatives. And if he leaves it any longer, the weather is only going to get worse. We spoke to Katani over the phone, as there are no audio studios or steady internet connection in this remote location. It was harsh winds, high gusting winds, dark, and no one was willing to go. So me and my brother decided to go and search for my uncle. The winds are harsh and it's pitch black outside. Katani doesn't know when help might arrive, so he and his brother Johnny set out to find them. All Katani knows is that his uncle's been hunting somewhere near the Fury and Hecla Strait, about an hour's boat ride from their home. Roping and his brother Johnny, the pair load up a boat each with food, flashlights, and warm clothing. Around 2 a.m., with the temperature now negative 20, and a vicious blizzard whipping snow into their faces, the two men push their boats into the sea, start up their engines, and edge out into the night. An hour later, as they battle through the blizzard and churning waves with only their flashlights to guide the way, the men are soon surrounded by thick ice flows. They look around in the pitch black for any sign of life. Only thing we look for a light. 
any kind of light, like uh, a flickering or flashlight. They look for any sign of light, even just a flicker or flashlight. Just then, through the screaming wind, they hear the faint, distant sound of a rumbling engine. The Herc. The men frantically scan above for any sign of it, when suddenly, out of the darkness, they spot smoky red and white lights falling from the sky. Flares drop by the crew of the Herc. They watch as the flares float down, turning everything an eerie shade of crimson before fizzing out and plunging them back into darkness. When the flare hits, it is so bright, it is like daylight all around for a split second. You could see two miles all around. As the flares continue to fall, Katani and Johnny scan the horizon for any sign of the missing men. Before long, their own boat is getting stuck in the ice flows. Ice doesn't stop for anybody. It's coming for you. They're only in a boat that's floating on water. These ice flows are tons. So much weight involved there. And they push you. They'll grab you. They got caught up in it. And they'll sink you. With the blizzard getting worse too, Katani and Johnny have no option but to return home. There's nothing we can do. The wind was too strong. My brother told us to come back. Katani takes one final look as the icy wind bites at his face and his own boat tosses about on the waves. But it is no good. His uncle and cousin are nowhere to be seen. And with that, he and his brother head home. The pair are devastated. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 1,600 miles to the south, in Gander, Newfoundland, Sean arrives for work. I think I might have been showing up around 6.37 at the time. Good morning to everybody. You show up early, have your coffee, you're figuring out a game plan, you're checking all your gear out. I think around 0800 hours, 
we got dispatched to a call. All me and my sergeant heard at the time was there were two hunters up north around Igloolik stuck in an ice floe and they were in need of help. Not long after Katani was forced to give up the search, incredibly, David and Lester's boat is finally spotted by the crew of the Herc. It's impossible to tell what condition the father and son are in, or if they are even still alive. A survival kit is dropped down to their boat containing a radio, food and water, and a stove. A short time later, a crackle comes through on the Herc's onboard radio. It's 17-year-old Lester. He and his father are both alive, but barely clinging on. They have no fuel for their stove, and their hands are too cold to open the packets of food in the survival kit. The stove dropped down to them is too soaked with water to work, but there is little more the rescue team can do. With the Herc running low on fuel, its crew are forced to return to base, leaving David and Lester alone once more, hideously exposed to the perilous icy waves. Back in Gander, Sean and his team are told to suit up and get ready to join the fray. They are under no illusions about what awaits them out there. You know what the risks are before you go out there. And it is always your decision whether you feel it's comfortable enough or safe enough. As a team, you make these calls. But I guarantee you this, when we're asked, are you guys sure you want to go out and do this under these extreme conditions? I can guarantee you it's usually 100% of the time, yes, we'll take that risk. It's not a decision that's taken lightly. Many Sartecs, like Sean, have partners and children. They're not just highly trained military personnel risking their lives to save others. They do it all while also being wives, husbands, mothers, and fathers. Despite all their training, this is one of the hardest challenges. They knew when we'd get called out, wives, girlfriends, relatives, that uh, if we're getting called out, it's generally for something serious. There's hugs and kisses and goodbyes before you leave, hopefully. Because who knows when you'll be back, right? With Sean's team flying by helicopter, it will take roughly 14 hours, just over a half a day, to get to Igloo Lake. To keep eyes on David and Lester in the meantime, a second Herc is dispatched this time from Trenton, Ontario, with a flight time of five hours. This team, known as Rescue 323, is led by 34-year-old father of two, Sergeant Janik Gilbert from Bay Como, Quebec, and includes Master Corporals Max Lehay LeMay and Marco Journeyman. All three are pararescuers, trained to jump out of planes if need be, to save lives. We had no idea who the sergeant was. We had no idea who the two master corporals were. We had no idea. Just three Sartecs. As Sean's team fly up the East Coast, they await news from the second Herc. Back in Igloolik, the community grows increasingly concerned for David and Lester. 
Many huddle around radios for any news of their whereabouts. The radio broadcast was 24-7 for locals, for everyone to know. By noon the following day, there are no further updates. Around 3 p.m., with Sean's team seven hours into their flight, they finally receive word from the second Herc. They've made contact with David and Lester. Having been out on the water in the freezing storm for 30 hours, the pair are still alive, but dangerously dehydrated and in the grip of hypothermia. Their boat, now being tossed about on 30-foot swells, is also flooded and on the verge of sinking. In response, the Herc's crew expertly drop a six-person raft, which lands close to the Akiruk's boat. With their last ounce of strength, both father and son drop into the icy water and pull themselves into the raft. Moments later, their boat sinks under the waves, taking all their food and their radio with it. At that point, now we know for sure it's going to be us from Gander, Newfoundland, performing an extraction, a rescue, right? A hoist to get them out of the ocean because helicopters can hover over water. That's easy. Airplanes do not. Sean's team are four hours away. The chance that David and Lester will still be alive by the time they get to them is close to zero. On board the Herc, Sergeant Janik Gilbert knows that if the father and son are left on their own down there, they will die. It is now or never. The only way to save them is to join them. To do that, they will have to parachute down to them. Considering the conditions they are working in, it's hard to overstate just how difficult it will be to pull this rescue off. The SAR's motto is, that so others can live. And Janik Gilbert lives by it. If that's what it takes to keep those men alive, then that's what they have to do. In a perfect scenario, sunny day and low winds, when we're doing our training and we're flying over an area that we want to parachute in, we carry these long flags equivalent to the size of a human being, and they're called streamers. We'll drop these streamers, and wherever they land, we will calculate that distance from where we're gonna jump in to where those flags have landed. So if we jump out upwind the same distance from where those flags landed, we should get our mark. Now, take that perfect scenario out of the equation. We're now performing a rescue up north in a place that's desolate and dark. And you have extreme high winds. Your target is moving and drifting and being pushed by icebergs, by winds, by waves, 30-foot swells. Now we're dealing with 100-kilometer winds. Throwing streamers out is next to impossible. You're not going to keep up watching that in the dark. I mean, we're talking high winds. Those streamers are gone. On board the Herc, Sergeant Gilbert and Master Corporals Lehela May and Journeyman clip onto the parachute cable. They wait by the open door as the plane drops to 5,000 feet. 
With the aircraft finally in position, the men inch their way toward the opening as an icy wind whips through the cargo hold. On Gilbert's signal, one by one, they jump out into the storm. From here on in, the men will no longer be in radio contact with anyone. It's a one-way ticket. Once they hit the water, they are relying solely on Sean's team to find them before it's too late for everyone. There's no point of return there. They have a few things for safety factors. They have their own individual life rafts. They have their own dry suits. They have their own survival kit. The other thing they have is that six to 10 man life raft. They also have their personal locator beacons or PLBs. GPS signals that can be triggered manually once they hit the water and will hopefully alert Sean's crew to where they and David and Lester are. As soon as all three Sartex parachuted in, you want to start thinking of when would be an appropriate time to push that button and show your position. And always sooner than later is for the best because once you hit the water, so many things can go wrong. So many things tend to change and you have no control. Sean's team lands at Cape Dorset to refuel. Their last stop before flying out across the Great Northwestern Passage toward Igloolik. Here they receive the news that Sergeant Gilbert and Master Corporals Lahela May and Journeyman have jumped out of their plane. Sean's team are still four hours away. So at this point, those three SAR jumping in from Trenton, their job now is to get to that life raft, uh, keep them alive, uh, perform medical care if need be, and then wait for us to show up to get everybody out safely. Almost immediately, something is wrong. We heard three SAR techs have parachuted in. What had us worried was two PLB beacons were going off. One was not. Four hours later, night has fallen when they finally arrive in the vicinity of the two personal locator beacons. The winds were extremely high. We're talking close to 100 kilometer winds. It was turbulent and it was cold and we were getting into some hail. It was getting much darker at this point, of course. And what really got scary when we got closer was I don't think anyone can predict how messy the sea state was with 20, 30 foot swells. And that's minus the, the chunks of ice that are also in there and the currents and the cold. As 30 foot swells rage beneath them and 60 mile per hour storm winds lash at the aircraft, Captain Aaron Noble, the helicopter's lead pilot, gets them into position. The sea is virtually indistinguishable from the sky. Everything was dark. So we only knew looking down, that would be the ocean. Looking up, that was the sky. One of the crew slides open the helicopter door to get a better view of the ocean, sending a vicious blast of icy air into the cabin. You're not getting away from the wet. You're not getting away from the cold. We're in our dry suits. We got our helmets on. We have our gloves on. We got our goggles on. So uh, rain or shine, colder heat, 
You're going out and you're going to do what you got to do. That's what we're trained for. The men scour the sea for any sign of the life raft as the chopper is battered by the elements. The weather was horrible. There was a lot of debris, rain, wind, hail that was grabbing onto the helicopter. You can feel the tail end of the chopper kicking back and forth. We were hitting wind pockets that would have us dip. Then finally, one of them spots something. As we were honing in on the first PLB, there was a strobe light off in the distance. They use night vision goggles to get a better sense of the situation. We can see that there's some movement. We can see that there were bodies in the raft, so we were going down. Because that's where our first uh, signal came from. When they draw closer to the PLB signals, it becomes clear that the two that they are receiving are in fact some distance apart. Sean's team suspect the three bodies in the raft are most likely David and Lester Akiaruk and one of their SAR colleagues. As the helicopter gets closer, it rocks wildly back and forth in the turbulence. As we were getting closer down, coming down closer to the raft that we were approaching, the waves were huge. It's almost indescribable when you're finally down face to face with 30 foot swells that were not consistent with one another. The ocean just didn't want us there. Finally in position, with a good visual on the six person raft, the decision is made to send Sean down. Sean slips a pair of fins onto his feet, then checks his swimsuit and buoyancy vest. Clipping his harness to the cable, he slides toward the open door and dangles his feet outside the aircraft. With one final look at the raft below, as it tosses about on the icy 30-foot swells, he drops down into the sea. In water temperatures that cold, you feel it through this suit. Even with your thermal barrier underneath, you're feeling it. Sean powers toward the raft, using his fins to propel him through the water as thick chunks of ice pummel into him. Within moments, he is clinging onto the side of it. First thing when I grabbed the raft was, thank God I grabbed this raft. Uh, the second thing was, I got to get on board this raft now because I'm being dragged. And then around you, you have chunks of ice. It's everywhere. Ice is everywhere. Sean hauls himself on board the raft. A hand grabs at him and pulls him inside. He actually helped pull me on board. And I remember him saying, oh, it's good to see you, buddy. And right there, that voice sounded familiar. It turned out it was one of my course mates, Max LeMay. And um, he was the one that made it to the raft. It's a great relief to see Max alive and well inside. With him are David and his 17-year-old son, Lester. Both are unconscious, but still alive and partially naked. One of the uh, things you end up doing uh, when you get cold hypothermic is you start removing layers. Well, they didn't have boots on or shoes. So everything was off their feet, including their socks. This is known as paradoxical undressing and often occurs when someone is suffering from the final stages of hypothermia. 
When the body is exposed to extreme cold temperatures, blood vessels contract, diverting blood away from the extremities to keep the core warm. The process can leave the victim feeling like they are overheating, and in their confusion, they start to take their clothes off. Once you're on board, then it's trying to get your bearings on what's up from down, because with these waves and these winds, you're you're kicking all over the place in this raft, and it's just a big cluster, right? Because you got other bodies in this six-man life raft, which isn't all that big. So while you're moving up and down, sideways and left, everyone's running into everybody, right? As Sean fights to keep stable in the raft, he disconnects himself from the winch cable and sends it back up so a rescue hoist can be lowered back down. But when it returns, there's no rescue hoist attached. Confused, Sean asks Max to keep watch over the Acurux as he jumps back into the water and signals for the crew to take him back up into the chopper to get the hoist himself. When he makes it back on board, he is completely overwhelmed by the cold. I ended up dropping to the ground. It was so cold that my hands actually froze up. I could not feel and they cramped up so bad because I only had my thin gloves on at this time. With Sean momentarily incapacitated, team leader, Sergeant Dan Villeneuve takes over. As the pilot keeps the chopper steady, Villeneuve drops into the raging icy sea and swims out to the life raft. After climbing inside, he gets the rescue harness on Lester and signals for the crew to haul him up. With Lester safely on board, he does the same for David and then Max. With all three men rescued, Sergeant Villeneuve is himself hauled back onto the aircraft. Once on board, David and Lester are given emergency treatment for hypothermia and slowly regain consciousness. The signs are good that by some miracle, they will survive this ordeal. All thanks to the brave actions of the three pararescuers. Without Max and those Sartex jumping in and Janik making that call to parachute in, those two fishermen probably would have passed. But for Sean and his team, the mission is far from over. Sergeant Gilbert and Master Corporal Marco Journeyman are still unaccounted for. We were glad to have everybody on board, but our priorities quickly changed to, we gotta get our, our brothers back on board this aircraft and get off this water. There's still two other Sartex to get, but we only have one PLB going. Now, the helicopter is running dangerously low on fuel. Using the chopper's searchlight, Sean's team scour the chaotic waters for any sign of the missing men. Just then, from out of the darkness below, a flare shoots up toward them. Wasn't far off from our chopper at all, to be honest. It came quite close to hitting us. With the flare narrowly missing them, the team spots the small one-person raft below where the flare had been fired from. You can see it in Longgate every time it would go over a 25, 30-foot swell. It was moving, it was bending. To have it stay afloat for three to five hours, I mean, is crazy. Sean jumps out once again into the water. 
Seconds later, he makes it to the raft, where, inside, he finds Marco Journeyman. His hands were frozen. He was a little disoriented. He wanted all his personal belongings to come up. I mean, life for himself didn't seem as important as his own personal belongings. So, like, that's how cold this guy ended up getting. I managed to flip him overboard, get the uh, the sling around him. I gave him the up signal to the pilot, and we got him out. With LaHaye LeMay and Journeyman out of the water, Sean's team quickly established what happened exactly after they jumped out of the herc. Max landed close enough to David and Lester's life raft to quickly get on board. Once inside, he kept the men warm and hydrated as best he could, while constantly bailing out water to prevent the raft from sinking. Marco Journeyman landed close by, but due to the ice and the swells, was unable to get close enough to join the others inside the raft. Instead, he deployed his own personal life raft and hit his personal locator beacon. He also spent the next three hours furiously bailing out water, desperately hoping Sean and his team would get to them in time. Neither he nor Max had seen Sergeant Gilbert since they had jumped. From here on, uh, we, we've then figured out who this third person was and that, it, yes, it was Janik that uh, didn't push the button to their PLB. Without having him push that button, I mean, you're just a small dot in the water with miles and miles and miles of ocean. As the helicopter fast approaches bingo fuel, the point where there is only enough fuel to get back to land, all on board search frantically for any sign of Yannick in the dark waves below. Occasionally, they spot something they think might be Yannick, only to find it's a piece of discarded equipment. Another time, they think they have him, but it's just his helmet floating in the water. The crew refused to give up. Now we are literally at bingo fuel. We only have a few minutes left. Then they see something. My partner, Sergeant Dan Navillanu, spotted Janik floating upright by an ice floe. Sergeant Janik Gilbert is floating face up in the water with no helmet on. As they draw nearer, they can see his body is completely still. All on board the helicopter know there is most likely nothing they can do for him. Despite running dangerously low on fuel and the risks involved in trying to get to him, there is no chance they're leaving him behind. Do you know when it comes to you and your own family, because that's what we are, we are SAR is a one big family and we are those trained to, to save others. We have a creed we say, We'll leave no one behind, not if there's something we can do about it. We'll take that less than 1% chance of succeeding, and we will find a way to make that happen more often than not. Whether we come home because of it or not, that other person will come home. We've all seen the movies and TV shows with the mentality of leaving no one behind. But I can attest that is 100% truth. Whether you're a Marine, a sailor, search and rescue member, when someone has been tragically killed, you feel it is your duty and responsibility as a team to do everything you can to bring that person home, to provide closure to the family and give them the honor and service they deserve. This is a creed we all live by, and it is a creed 
that we're willing to die by. Because Sergeant Gilbert and Sergeant Villeneuve are good friends, Sean volunteers to go down and get him. I made the call to go down and grab Janik because I didn't know Janik, obviously, as well, being a new member of the Sartek team, that it would have a less emotional impact on me going down to perform this rescue. And we both agreed it was for the best. Sean plunges back into the water for the third time that night. He was floating upright. He didn't look well. He didn't have any of his gear, not even his helmet on. Sean battles through the waves to get to Janik. Through the ice and towering swells, he just about manages to get the rescue collar around him. But just as he prepares to signal the helicopter to bring him up, they are blindsided by a huge wave that crashes down on top of them, submerging them deep underwater. The weight of his suit and the weight of his body twisted us under the water. So I was submerged under the water with Janik. Sean is now in a fight for his own survival as they roll in the water. But he is determined not to let Janik go. As they are tossed about under the water like rag dolls, Sean is smashed in the head by the cable. I remember the cable coming up and whacking me hard in the face. I was beginning to go a little unconscious myself at that time. So it was a wake-up call. Unable to hold his breath any longer, Sean begins to inhale water. Then finally, he feels the tug of the cable, and within moments, he and Janik are being lifted free of the icy waters and up toward the helicopter. I managed to hold on to Janik as tight as I can until we got on board. It takes four men, including Max and Marco, to haul Sean and Sergeant Gilbert back into the chopper. Once on board, Gilbert's body is unclipped from the cable and laid out on the helicopter floor. I went down, coughing up, puking up water. When I came through, I remember grabbing the defibrillator, which helps boost the heart. I was waved off by my partners. I mean, the way Janik looked, it was his eyes that were glazed over. He was cold, and there's not much we could have done for him. With that, the helicopter door is slammed shut. Then, Captain Noble turns the chopper around and heads for Igloolik. After 30 hours trapped in an ice floe, enduring negative 30 degree temperatures, 30 foot swells, and winds up to 60 miles per hour, David and Lester Akiruk have been rescued. But there are mixed emotions for all on board. Once the door was closed, we closed the door and we were flying back off to, to land. Um, it was, a, I think, a little bit of an overwhelming feeling that our, our objectives were met. You know, we wanted a better outcome. We wanted Janik to be alive. But we're heading back to dry land. With only minutes left in the tank, Rescue 915 successfully returns to land arriving in Igloolik just before dawn. We ended up transiting back and landed in Igloolik. A lot of us, of course, all of us are, are exhausted. 
We all got checked by the hospital, by the nurses. There was some psychological examinations done quickly to see where everybody's minds were at. David and Lester are rushed to the hospital where they are reunited with their immensely grateful and relieved friends and family. Meanwhile, with Sergeant Janik Gilbert's body back on land, the tragic news of his passing reaches his wife and children. Though nothing will make up for the loss of the loving husband and father, his family were grateful for the efforts that Sean and his team went through to bring him home. For those who survived, returning to their own homes was bittersweet. Coming back home, it was a whole other thing. We didn't know this at the time, but all the families back at home, Gander, Newfoundland, they knew that a star tech passed, but they didn't know who. They didn't know who until we all came out of the chopper and they got to see that we all made it. The question afterwards, after the tears and the hugs was, who was it that didn't make it? In the weeks that followed, Sean and his team were left to process everything that had happened. We train every day to, to perform these kinds of rescues, but it took me a long time to realize and understand that this specific rescue was more of a big deal than a lot of other rescues that have been performed uh, Canada-wide by Search and Rescue. It hasn't really sunk in. I, I, I play it in my mind on a regular basis. It's no fault of my own, it just, it's there. It's always there. But I think what gets me through it is we managed to bring Janik home to his family and then give that sense of closure, right? Where he got to have the right kind of burial. Family got to say bye in the right ways. Sergeant, Janik Gilbert was given a full military funeral at the Canadian Forces Base in Valcartier, Quebec, on November 5th, 2011. We were all invited to Janik's memorial. A lot of SAR, a lot of family showed up for this. He had a beautiful family, wife and kids. I remember sitting there and feeling so surreal, like this did happen. Sean and the other surviving members of the rescue were awarded Canada's Star of Courage in recognition of their heroic acts. But it was difficult to accept it under the circumstances. But uh, I still have a hard time expressing how I truly feel about receiving anything. I'll be honest, uh, that award stayed in the shoebox for three, four years. We did it for Janet. We went to receive that reward. It was for Janik. The hero that night was Janik. Janik made the right call for him and his boys to jump in. Although it cost him his life, he's the hero. I think one of the things that some listeners might not have an awareness of is to do with what happens when a team member is lost in circumstances like this. Of course, you feel the pain of losing someone, but I can tell you from personal experience, anybody that is part of a team and does lose someone, 
there is that mentality that the person who has been lost would not want you to sit around and feel sorry for them. They would literally want you to pick your head up and get back into the fight. They were doing the job they wanted to do. They were doing the job they loved. And when it comes down to saving lives, if their life must be sacrificed to save two, five, or even a hundred, they're willing to do that. That's how they want to be remembered. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Ellie Lazaridis for additional production support. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.